Have you ever been mocked by someone? Not talking about a, you know, a playful jest by your spouse or a friend where you both know there's a joke going and you both have a good laugh. I'm not talking about that. I mean really being mocked. Maybe someone mocked you about your appearance or they mocked you over your lack of skill at something. Maybe it was over the fact you took a little longer to learn something than it took others or maybe it was something entirely different than any of that but some bully let you and everyone else know about it. And they had a good laugh, perhaps, at your expense. They took some sort of pleasure in your pain. Maybe it was uh, when you were in school, when you were young. Maybe it was even when you were an adult on the job. You know, you'd think bullying and mockery would stop at about fifth grade or something, right? But it doesn't. Somehow adults, grown adults, get caught up in dishing out mockery as well, don't they? Sadly, perhaps even we've been on the dishing end of mockery at some point, to our shame. And sometimes mockery can get really ugly, especially in a group setting, right? One person says something, they get a few chuckles. Other people jump in. They want a little piece of that laughter. And before you know it, there's four or five. They're feeding on it. And with each passing mock, there's just less inhibitions. They keep piling on. It becomes very hurtful to people. It can be very traumatic to people that are on the receiving end of that, right? Another thing about mockery, it just tends to trigger something in us. It hurts, doesn't it? Deeply. That old adage, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't think that's true. Sometimes I think words do more damage than physical blows could ever do. I'm reminded of a song I listen to quite regularly by an artist named Dave Barnes. It's called Sticks and Stones. Part of it goes like this. You would have kept those words on your tongue if you'd had known the hurt they'd done. While your fist stayed right by your side, your words, they bruised me deep inside. I'd rather have sticks and stones and broken bones than the words you say to me. Because I know bruises heal and cuts will seal, but your words beat the life out of me. Powerful song. And parents, oh my. You're a parent, and any of us try to even think, well, I've got thick skin, mockery doesn't bother me. Just think of that feeling inside you that makes you want to rise to the defense of your child if you witness them being mocked. You felt that before? It almost makes your blood boil, doesn't it? If you want to get a rise out of a parent, just mock their children, right? You can mock me, that's going to do one thing to me, but it'll do something totally different to someone who mocks your children. And parents rise to their children's defense very quickly. We could go on and on and on talking about various forms of mockery and just different aspects of mockery. But the general point I'm trying to make here at the beginning 
that mockery inflicts a special kind of pain. And today, as we take the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, and we remember what Jesus has done for repentant sinners, I'd like to just set this fact before all of our minds for a few minutes. Jesus himself was mocked in some of the worst possible ways you can ever imagine. And he endured all of that so that we might be saved. He was mocked as he stood in our place as our substitute. You know, it's one thing to mock somebody about their weight or their appearance or their intelligence level or their lack of skill at something. It's another thing to mock someone who's dying. The wickedness factor goes up exponentially when that dying person is the most innocent person who has ever walked the face of the earth. And then it goes up even further when this person is himself the very son of God, the maker of the ones doing the mocking. So we sometimes talk about the physical pain of the crucifixion and the scourging, and indeed, it was horrific. It was absolutely horrific what a person would go through under Roman scourging and crucifixion. It was an especially brutal and embarrassing way to die. And we sometimes talk about the spiritual pain when Jesus was on the cross bearing the awful load of sin that was not his. It was ours. It was yours. And it was my sin that was laid on him there. And perhaps that was the heaviest load of the whole thing. That Jesus bore the wrath of God. He bore God's rejection on our behalf. He took every ounce of my rejection so that I would never have to see the back of God's head, so to speak. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that I would never, ever have to say that? Now I say, thank you, Lord, that you, you said you'll never leave me or forsake me. You said you'd be with me to the very end of the age. And, and when I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, even there I don't have to be afraid because you're with me. So yes, the spiritual agony was there and the physical agony was there and yet there's this other aspect that's related to those, yes, but a little bit different about the suffering of Jesus that we don't often talk about. I'm talking about this emotional and psychological agony that Jesus endured on our behalf through the mocking. And it's very interesting because when you read the Gospels, a in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that the writers there, they actually take a lot of time and care to let us know just how badly Jesus was mocked and treated. So, today, I'd like for us to read parts of Mark 14 and 15. If you'll go ahead and turn there. And we'll see there something of the mocking of Jesus. 
And hopefully, my prayer is that this will further deepen and under, under, deepen our understanding, rather, and appreciation of the person and work of Jesus. That's the goal, to look at him and just say, wow, he took that for me? Amazing. So look at Mark 14, and we're going to begin reading in verse 53. 53. Just to set a little bit of context, Judas has just betrayed Jesus right before this. He's handed him over to the hands of the chief priest and the elders and the scribes, and they bring him to the council called the Sanhedrin which is the highest ruling council that the Jews had. And that's where we pick up, okay? Verse 53. We're going to read kind of a lengthy section today, okay? Verse 53 says, And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. For now, we'll skip over the part about Peter denying Jesus That would be a message in itself. Let's jump over to chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. By the way, just to clarify for anyone who might not know who Pilate was, Pilate was a Roman governor of Judea at that time. The Jews were ruled by the Romans, and the Jews didn't have the power to execute a person without Pilate's authorization, so they had to take him to him. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? 
And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. Excuse me. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour. That's about 9 a.m., When they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to another saying, He saved others. 
He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We'll stop there. What a scene. So let's see. Jesus had a mock trial. In other words, it was a total mockery of justice. He was literally spit on by the highest religious leaders in the land of all people. He was punched and slapped in the face while blindfolded and told to prophesy. In other words, what they do, they, they, they were mocking him over this claim to be the Son of God, so they would blindfold him, punch him in the face, and say, Who hit you? Tell us. He was also mocked by the fact that people wanted a murderer released out of prison rather than him. In other words, we think more of this murder than we do of you, Jesus. We want you dead. And then he was unjustly scourged. Again, just a total mockery of justice. Any semblance of justice. Pilate admits that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. Yet he's, I guess he supposes that if he at least scourges Jesus and they see the wounds that scourging puts on a man, they'll say, okay, that's enough. Thank you, Pilate. We'll be, have a nice day. But they weren't satisfied with that. They were intent on killing Jesus. And of course, Pilate himself is not free from guilt over this. He makes a total mockery of justice here along with the rest. He finds Jesus innocent Why was there a scourging then? Why was there a crucifixion at all? Of course, we know bigger things are going on here, though, don't we? Bigger things happening here in the sovereign plan of God, but that doesn't excuse the wickedness of the perpetrators here. Scripture never excuses them. This was wicked, a wicked thing to do. And just as a side note here, Do you find it remarkable how matter-of-fact and brief the biblical writers are about some of these things? Mark just says, having scourged Jesus, verse 15, the horrific act of scourging is just like mentioned in passing, so understated. What a world of pain in that little phrase. In in case you didn't know, I'll do a slight sidebar here. In case you didn't know, Roman scourging involved an especially cruel type of whip. You know, we tend to think of a whip like Indiana Jones whip, just one long leather strap, you know. This one was different. It was made up of multiple leather strips, They had metal weights on the end. They had shards of bone and other sharp metal tied in to the leather straps. So that, you know, when the the Roman soldier would administer the blows to the back and to the sides of the person, it would not only, would the weights deeply bruise the, the, the muscles... 
But the bone shards and the muscle shards would stick into the flesh at multiple spots. And then when the whip was jerked back, it would expose the underlying tissue. Sometimes to the point that the inner organs of the person would be exposed. Sometimes people died just in the scourging itself. An extreme amount of blood loss would take place. It's no wonder that they had to recruit Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross. He was exhausted with little blood left. He could barely make it. This was ruthless. And it was usually carried out by not just one soldier, but two, so they wouldn't get tired. One would do his blow, then the other one. Now this guy's turn, back and forth. It was so brutal, they made it illegal to perform on a Roman citizen. It was one of their protections. No Roman will ever receive that from us. That's too. No, we're not going to do that. That's reserved for non-Roman criminals who would dare to try to interrupt our... Pax Romana, this era of so-called Roman peace. So here tied in kind of closely in aspects of this, the mockery fitting in with some of the physical aspects too. But more mocking came after this. After he had been scourged, the whole battalion of Roman soldiers put this mock kingly robe around him. And then they twisted the thorns together to make this mock crown. They put it on his head. And they began to mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they took a reed, I guess like his little scepter, like all kings should have. Probably took it out of his hand and beat him on the head with it. And the, 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 the thorns would go more deeply into his scalp. Probably sending horrific pain all down the body. Scout being very sensitive. And it didn't stop there. He's already got spittle all over him from the chief priest. Well, now the Romans are spitting on him. They spit on him, it says. They knelt down and they mockingly worshipped him. Then they, they ripped the purple clobe from, or clobe, robe from him. This is after the scourging, so no doubt that was horrifically painful to rip that off of his body. And they put his own clothes back on him, it says. Then they crucify him. Remarkable restraint from Mark there, too. Not many details, just they crucified him. Then they're right in front of him, somewhere nearby there. They're gambling for his clothing right in front of him as he's dying. Then there's these passers-by who the Romans would do these type of things in a public area so everybody would say, whoa, don't do whatever he did because that's what will happen to you in a public place. And it says these passers-by were deriding him, wagging their heads. That's an outward sign of mockery. This is some of what Jesus endured that day. 
And I won't be long in message today from this point forward. I'd just like to point out two things regarding the mocking of Jesus. Number one, the revealing of the human heart. I find it telling, don't you? That verses 29 to 32 of chapter 15 spell out all the people who were mocking Jesus as he was dying. First, there was the general public described as those who passed by. Then there was the religious leaders. Then it says even the two criminals that were crucified beside him were reviling him. Basically, everyone was mocking Jesus is what I'm trying to say. Everyone. Isn't that amazing? Even the apostles have fled. Only a very small number of faithful people stay with him there. Some of them faithful women who had followed him and cared for him during his ministry. But overall... Everyone was mocking Jesus. What a sickening thing the human heart is, isn't it? It's no wonder that it takes a miracle from God to save a human heart. The prophet Jeremiah talks about our heart. He says the heart is deceitful. Not just deceitful, but deceitful above all things and Desperately sick. Who can understand it, he says. Jeremiah 17, 9. So the biblical picture of reality is that all people everywhere are by default under the bondage of sin and enemies of God. We read it earlier in Romans 5, 10. It speaks of us that way. We were his enemies And if we are tempted to say, I'd never do what those people did to Jesus if I was there. Let's be careful that we don't get too self-righteous. The same sin is in us that was in the mockers there. In fact, just think back, if you're saved today, think back before you came to Christ. Weren't you and I living every day in a type of mockery toward God? By our sin, by our lack of interest in His glory or His gospel. We have more information than these guys had. We have the full revelation of Scripture, and yet we still have mocked God in our own way aplenty. That is the heart of man at enmity with God. Rebels at heart, mocking the very God who made them. Romans 3.23, you know it well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you want to know why Jesus was hanging there, being mocked and killed? It's because of our sin. And if God allowed me to travel back in time and embody, so to speak, somebody in that horrific scene, I'm convinced I would be the one holding the hammer. 
the hammer would be in my hand. That's how much it, it should hit home to us, you know? My sins are why Jesus was there. My mockery would be heard there along with everyone else. We just sang it. I don't know if you noticed. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Oh, if we need a picture of what sin does to a human heart. Just look at this scene. It's the one who created the galaxies, the stars, the earth, the blue whale, the dinosaurs, the flowers, and everything in between, including us as human beings. That person, the creator, is there suspended on a cross with nails going through his feet and hands, dying and bleeding in utter agony while little creatures of dust that he made deride him and scorn him. This is what sin does to us. It is a dismal picture of the human heart, but it's reality. And I don't want to sugarcoat it at all. This describes every single one of us apart from Christ. We're no better than any of these despicable mockers that we just read about. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. There it is. We esteemed him not. We did not hold him in high regard. That is what these people were doing. And that's what every one of us does because of the sin that's infected every part of us. We don't esteem him as he should be esteemed. We think lightly of him. When we see that reality, is it not righteous of God for him to send people like us to hell. It's exactly what I deserve and you deserve. Let's just feel the weight of that for a moment. But I noticed something else looking at this scene. I want you to notice something else. The revealing of Jesus' heart. Not only do we see in this mockery the condition of the human heart, but we get a picture of what's in Jesus' heart as well. It is absolutely astounding what Jesus endured on this day in history. You know, the whips, the spittle, the punches, the slaps, the mockery, the arrogant jeers and sneers. The blasphemy, that's actually the word that Mark uses in verse 29, by the way. When the English, in the ESV, as I read it, the English word derided is translated from the same Greek word that also means blasphemy. I wonder if Mark had a bit of irony writing that. You know, they thought Jesus was the one that was the blasphemer, and we're going to kill him. 
How dare he say he's the son of God? But here he is, the actual son of God. And Mark says, they're blaspheming. They didn't even know it. But just as that song said, behold the man upon the cross. Behold him there. He's just quietly submitting to their wicked plans. He hasn't spoken up for himself or tried to get out of it. Nor has he called upon heaven to come defend him and wipe out these people who were doing this to us. He could have, but he didn't do it. That tells me a lot about Jesus, does it you? The Apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2.23, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Not retaliating, not lashing out, but submitting himself to the Father in obedience for the sake of all those who will come to him in faith. Isaiah 53 again, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the Savior of mankind. Submitting himself. Fully to the Father's will. Let, letting little men spit in his face. And mock him. And torture him. And kill him. All so that he can accomplish the salvation of his people. In Matthew 26, Jesus says this to his followers. They tried to defend him whenever the mob came to get him. And to arrest him, they tried to defend him, and he told them, Matthew 26, 53, and 54, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? The songwriter told the truth when he wrote, He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. What love for sinners must be in the heart of Jesus to endure this. Ask yourself that day. Or ask yourself that today. That's the main thrust of the message. What kind of love is this? This is love unlike any other. John Calvin said this about this passage here. He says, Here is brightly displayed the inconceivable mercy of God towards us. In bringing his only begotten son so low on our account. This was also a proof which Christ gave of his astonishing love toward us. That there was no ignominy, which means public shame or disgrace. There was no public shame or disgrace to which he refused 
to submit for our salvation. Wow. There's more irony in this scene too. These people are calling there on Jesus to come down from the cross and save himself. Show your power and we'll believe. They mock him. Save yourself. You can't even save yourself. How can you be the son of God then? But the irony is that he was showing more power by staying there than he would have by coming down because, of, because instead of saving himself, he was doing something there that would save a host of people throughout all of history. Listen to what D.A. Carson says on this. The truth of the matter is that Jesus could not save himself. Not because of any physical constraint, but because of a moral imperative. He came to do his Father's will, and he would not be deflected from it. The one who cries in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, but yours be done, is under such a divine moral imperative from his Heavenly Father that disobedience is finally unthinkable. It was not nails that held Jesus to that wretched cross. It was his unqualified resolution out of love for his father to do his father's will. And within that framework, it was his love for sinners like me. He really could not save himself, end quote. He would not save himself. That's not what he came to do. He came to save sinners, And he would see to it that it happened through all the spit and mockery and all of that. In obedience to his father and because of the great love with which he has loved us. Isn't this amazing? When we consider everything that Jesus went through and the remarkable restraint and humility that he demonstrated against this kind of hostility... And also the restraint of the father not to look down and say, you're done. That should just cause our praise to deepen tremendously. The restraint to to promise they're going to redeem mankind. And even through this horrific uh, mockery going on with it to its completion. This was no little thing. He endured it all for us. Have you ran to him in faith? Have you come to Christ in faith? Repent of your sin and just throw yourself on the mercy of God. He will save you. That's why he did all this. It's why he did it. What compassion, what love, what mercy, what grace. And I pray that God would soften your heart today if you can really consider these things and still brush him off. Come to Christ today. And if you are a Christian, 
See there in your mind's eye the Son of God beaten, battered, bruised, crushed under the weight of your sin, mocked at an unthinkable level, and see and feel the strength of his love for you to stay there and let them do it. This is exhibit A for the love of God towards sinners. But God shows his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 And Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. I hope we've done that today. I hope we'll continue to do that today and throughout the week. Consider Jesus. Consider what he's done. Consider what God planned. Consider what he actually carried out. Nothing stopped him, not even horrific mockery like we've seen today. He would send his son, and he would not have to twist the son's leg. He was willing to come and bear our sins all the way to the finish for us. Maybe next time you and I are mocked in some way, because I'm sure it'll happen. The next time we receive that mockery, or the next time some traumatic mockery comes to mind like it does sometimes in the past. Something pops in and it bothers you. Maybe we'll think, consider Jesus. Oh, what he was willing to go through for you and I. When we look on that, that sacrifice, that mockery, as we've tried to do today, it just humbles us to the core, doesn't it? And now we just say, Lord, if, if you go through all that for me, I'm at your disposal. Do with me as you will, Lord. I'm your willing servant. It is a privilege to serve such a wonderful Savior, isn't it? Amen. Let me close with the words of Isaac Watts, and then we'll have communion together. Isaac Watts is a hymn writer from the late 1600s and early 1700s. If, if you don't know his name, you've sung many of his hymns before and you just didn't know it. But as he pondered the weight and the ramifications of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, he wrote these words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died... My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I love that. Amen. Let's pray together and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, this plan of yours is unfathomable. I cannot wrap 
my mind around how much you must love sinners to do this. Through your beloved son for the purpose of saving us and forgiving us and making us right with you. That, that is beyond my comprehension. As David himself wrote, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Make us understand, Lord, these two things that we've dwelt on today. Both the depth of the wickedness of our own sin and the height and depth of your love in Christ to accomplish our forgiveness and our justification. If we stand right with you today, it's only because Jesus took our place and he did everything necessary to save us. We deserve none of your grace or mercy and yet you pour it on. You lavish us with it. Help us to feel the weight of what you've done and give you the glory appropriately. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.